And I started to notice that globally, there was something really shifting as well. And my job was becoming increasingly harder where there would be no snow in Utah, no snow in Japan, no snow in the Alps, and very, very little snowpack and storms around the world. And this was undeniable. And I would speak to elders in these communities, elders in Japan, elders in Switzerland. And the consensus was always the same, that something has really changed and is feels like we're headed in a in a bad direction. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and our guest on the Green Hour today found her love for the environment growing up on the ski slopes of Park City, Utah. This love for skiing eventually became much more as she eventually became a professional skier. With all of this time spent on the slopes, she began to realize that these slopes had less and less snow every year. She kept asking herself the question, why is there less snow? And this question led her to becoming an advocate for the environment. On today's show, we will learn how she harnessed her love for the outdoors and combined it with her unique platform to drive change. From founding Plastic Free Fridays, a movement that empowers individuals to reduce single-use plastics, to becoming a strategic brand ambassador, Sierra's journey inspires us to rethink the role of activists and showcases that impactful change can stem from everyday actions. Tune in as we discuss the devastating impact of the Maui wildfires and learn how rising temperatures can affect us all. When you hear the term climate activists, certain images might come to mind. Protests, disruptions, even controversial actions. But climate activism goes far beyond what your news channel publishes. Our guest today defies the stereotypical mold of a climate activist. She's not blocking streets or tossing soup at famous artworks. Instead, she's using her unique journey and passions to make a powerful impact. She's a professional skier, a sought-after model, and above all, a lover of our beautiful planet. Climate activism at its heart is about standing up for the causes you believe in and amplifying your voice with passion, not aggression. It's about channeling your energy into actions that drive meaningful change. Our guest exemplifies this principle through her inspiring story. Sierra Quidiquit grew up in Park City, Utah, and if you wanted to find her growing up, all you had to do was go to the slopes. Skiing was in her DNA, and she used her passion to become a professional skier. Sierra's journey wasn't only confined to the ski runs. Her experiences led her to the very pinnacle of the modeling world, gracing campaigns for renowned companies such as American Eagle and Nike. Sierra proved that the slopes and the runway need not to be separate worlds, seamlessly blending her love for skiing with a successful career in the modeling industry. However, Sierra's story goes beyond the glossy covers and glamorous photo shoots. It's about the deep connections she forged with the environment and the profound impact that skiing had on her understanding of climate change. 
Having witnessed firsthand the transformation of snowfall patterns and the ski seasons due to the effects of a warming planet, Sierra realized that her voice, her platform, could be a powerful tool in advocating for the preservation of our Earth. People with influence play a unique role in shedding light on environmental issues and driving change. With a platform to use, they can enact real change. Sierra's commitment extends far beyond her personal advocacy as she's actively engaged with organizations like Protect Our Winters and even found herself in unexpected conversations about climate change on the global stage, including the NATO Roundtable and Summit. Sierra has also molded entrepreneurship into her journey, founding Time for Better, a marketing agency that creatively communicates the urgency of climate change through innovative strategies and events. She also founded Plastic Free Fridays, a movement to reduce the use of single-use plastic by raising awareness and shaping positive habits to benefit everyone. Sierra's journey started on the ski slopes, where she realized early on that climate change was affecting the very thing that she loved. So today on the Green Hour, we are with Sierra Quitaquit, who is a professional athlete, model, and climate activist. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sierra. I can't wait to, to dive in. Thanks, Preston. Thanks for having me. The first thing I want to unpack is, you know, your journey and, and where you grew up and how you got to the place you are today. So just from our first initial conversation in Utah, um, I learned that you grew up in Salt Lake City. And you grew up skiing in, in Salt Lake. And that's one thing that we share because I, too, grew up um, going to Salt Lake every winter with my family. I definitely wasn't as good of a skier as you are, but uh, I had a lot of good times out there. So could you start by talking about, you know, growing up in Salt Lake City and, and what that meant for you? Yeah, I actually grew up in a, a small town just out of Salt Lake called Park City, Utah. My dad um, was a big ski bomb, essentially, and raised my family there. And um you know, my family lived in a really, really, really small condo as a family of six. And so, you know, if I wanted space to myself, I was outside. And so I spent a lot of time in nature and um, it was a great upbringing. So what I read was you actually grew up in a van in Park City. Is that true? Yeah. Um, there were times where my family would give up our condo or apartment and the family would move into a uh, a Ford Econoline van and we would travel around camping and, and skiing. And that was a really fun adventure as a kid. So, so you grew up in Utah and obviously you were, you were in the outdoors a lot and that kind of started your journey in skiing. I mean, Park City is a uh, massive ski town. Like I said, I grew up skiing in, in uh, Park City. Um, so you know, growing up in Park City, I'm guessing, I mean, you're skiing multiple times a week or, or how, how often were you skiing? Um, I skied six, seven days a week my whole my whole life until um, until more recently when work took me in other directions. But sometimes I was homeschooled and I skied every day of the week. And even if I was in school, we probably got out of school earlier to ski. We went night skiing. So it's definitely uh, what I grew up in a in a little bit of a, a sheltered ski environment. You know, you allude to your skiing heritage and the impact that your grandfather had um, and also your father on their um, love for the sport. So can you talk on, you know, how 
those two people in your life really impacted you and as far as, you know, impacted you skiing? My grandfather um, was actually a Filipino man um, who was in the Navy and he was stationed in Alaska where they taught him how to backcountry ski and he found the passion as a young man and went on to become a ski racer in the Master Series and raised my dad, also very passionate about competitive ski racing and my dad ended up getting a full ride scholarship to the University of Utah and passed that down to me and my three brothers and raised us um, as skiers. And um, he was our ski coach growing up as well. We couldn't afford the ski team sometimes. So my dad got his coaching license and um, we'd pay the entry fees and have Team Quiddy Quit entered in the race. And so it was really, really wonderful to be just outside and in the snow. One thing that I never thought of until I heard you speak at the ACC Summit in Utah was, you know, the impact of climate change on something like the sport of skiing. Um, you're a professional skier, but now you've pivoted into almost a, not even almost, you pivoted into a role of, of climate activist. And you're talking about, you know, how the climate impacts, you know, skiing, ski slope. So, did you see this, you know, growing up um, or has this been more of a recent thing where you see how the climate has really impacted the sport of skiing? So growing up every year, we used to jump off our roof and we used into the snow and we used to build forts and tunnels in our backyard because there was always six feet of snow outside during the winter season. And there was snow days all winter long. They actually just put them in the calendar year, probably four or five snow days because they knew at some point blizzards would roll through and the roads would get closed. Then growing up in my teenage years, in like the early mid 2000s, I started to learn about global warming and how that would affect, um, you know, temperatures and snowpack around the world. And I just thought this is horrific. Like this will affect my passion, my sport of skiing. Uh, and then I became a professional skier and I really started to witness this. Um, you know, we started to see shorter and shorter ski seasons, less and less snowfall during those ski seasons and my town, which hosted the, the World Cup every year, which was a multi-million dollar tourist revenue for my community, um, was no longer able to host that event in November because um, there wasn't enough snow to make that happen. And so there was really a shift happening. And we started to, you know, amongst my community, really correlate this to what the scientists had been talking about, which at the time we, we talked about it more as global warming than climate change. And, um, you know, and when I, I started to pick up my endorsement deals for skiing, I got the opportunity to travel around the world and to go to places like the Swiss and French Alps, to go to Japan, um, to go to Chile and Argentina in the summer months and ski. And I started visiting and revisiting and revisiting those places. And I started to notice that globally, there was something really shifting as well. And my job was becoming increasingly harder where there would be no snow in Utah, no snow in Japan, no snow in the Alps, and very, very little snowpack and storms around the world. And this was undeniable. And I would speak to elders in these communities, elders in Japan, elders in Switzerland, 
And the consensus was always the same, that something has really changed and is feels like we're headed in a, in a bad direction. So that was when I really started to feel like, you know, climate change was upon us and the general public wasn't really aware that this shift was actually happening right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't skied in probably four or five years, but the last place I skied was in Steamboat, Colorado. And I remember me and my friend, uh, it was a group of us, we went up there and you know, I'm not, I'm not a great skier. I would call myself a survivor. Um, so I do, uh, mm-hmm. do the pizza all the way down. Uh, <laughs> <with the> skis. <laughs> and so we, we did all the black diamonds on steamboat that were open. Um, but the double black diamonds were not open the time that we went because there wasn't enough snow. And honestly, thank God that they weren't because we probably would have got hurt. Uh, cause we would have tried to do them. <laughs> uh, but I also have memories growing up of skiing on the East coast. Um, cause I'm here in Georgia and these places you'd go ski, there was no actual snow. It was all manufactured snow. And I just remember how icy it would be and almost dangerous. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it really speaks to, you know, how the climate has changed. And as you allude to global warming. So it, it really puts you in this really unique position um, as, as someone that is, um, I would say, you're almost like an influencer now. Um, you have a huge a media following on socials. Um, you do a lot of impactful work. So I guess I would ask you, you know, what is, you know, how important is it that people that like like yourself advocate for better solutions that we can battle against climate change? We live in a country that's really interesting. Globally, there's not really a debate around climate change. There's not the same denial that we have in in, in this nation. Um, you know, France and and most of Europe is not just accepting that climate change is happening, but they're making policy measures and investments and energy, renewable energy, um, mass available. And we've yet to update our grid to be even able to deploy renewable energy at scale. And there's a lot, a lot of challenges we're facing in the United States because so much of our population is still uncertain that this is the crisis that it is. And the challenge here is that there's a there's a certain future that's ahead of us for at least the next 20 to 30 years, if not 40 to 50, um, hopefully 20 to 30. And, but a lot of that depends on what we do over the next few years and, and decade. And if we don't get it together now, we're really, really going to suffer. No one's going to be immune. And we're seeing things like the the heat waves that are happening all across our nation, the record-breaking temperatures. Um, and, you know, for some of us, this is a inconvenience and we've got to spend our days indoors spending more money on air conditioning. But for other people that don't have that financial privilege of air conditioning, this means health crisis or even death. And for people that live in communities that are, it's not safe enough to say open their windows at night. This also means, you know, death for those communities. The agricultural industry is getting disrupted. We're going to see a lot of migrant issues. And then we see things like what happened in Hawaii recently, which is whole towns burning down you know, towns that have existed for hundreds of years just being burnt to the ground. And 
what happened in that situation, because I have a lot of friends on Maui, is they were experiencing weather systems that they'd never experienced before. The Hawaiians don't experience hurricanes typically. And there was hurricanes far off the coast of, of Hawaii that pulled all of the moisture out of the air. And there was literally just spontaneous fires being started combined with massive winds that were blowing these these fires across neighborhoods. And these are scenarios that are only going to happen more increasingly, unfortunately. And so it's it's going to get weird. Yeah, I was actually in Hawaii a week before the wild, maybe a week and a half before the wildfires. I was in Oahu and um, we were staying there. I was actually hiking the legal, the legal way to the stairway to heaven. So the legal hike on the backside of that mountain. And I was at the very top of the mountain and, you know, the a hurricane or tropical storm was coming in. And this was like, again, like a week and a half, two weeks before these wildfires happened. And the wind was so strong that I'm hiking along the ridge of this mountain and I have to like, hold on, hold on to stuff because I feel like I'm going to get blown off. You know, I'm taking a, I'm taking a photo and I have a hat on my head and the hat gets blown off of my head. I mean, I have a, I have a photo and a video of it and it's, it's crazy how fast the wind and how strong the wind is that's blowing this. So when I saw this stuff about Maui and the wildfires, I was like, I, I know how strong the winds are because I just experienced it. And I don't know a lot about wildfires. I don't know the origin of, of what happened in Maui. I mean, you, you did a great job talking about it. But I do know winds like that can really spread something. That's what looked like what, what happened. And the last last time I looked at it, it looked like the death toll was around 100. That was a, about a week and a half ago. So that could be more now. And it was said to be more than $5 billion in damages. I mean, even the photos from this were just wild. I mean, you had just cars just sitting on the highway, uh, just empty, abandoned, and you had ash everywhere. And it looked like, it almost looked like a, like a, like a bomb had gone off in Maui. Uh, it's just, it's just something wild to see. And I mean, you talk about in the U S we have climate deniers, you have events like this and it's hard not to see what is happening. So I just hope that people can, can understand that. Um, and that's why I'm glad that you're on today to speak to this, um, with your expertise, because the impact of climate change, look at what's happening all across the world. Look at what's happened in Maui. Yeah, that death toll actually is, they're officially calling it 114, but there's, um, I think, nearly 400 people, quote unquote, missing. Um, and let me tell you, when you live on, live on an island, it's hard to go missing for long. So I think it's safe to say that that death toll has hit around 500. And there's you know, a lot of migrant worker populations that live in Lahaina too, that, that may not be reporting as well. So, um, that's 500 lives lost. That's plus, that's pretty, pretty massive in the history of United States disasters. Yeah. So, I mean, from your experience, I mean, you you talked about how you have friends in Maui and Hawaii do wildfires. Is this, is this a, an occurrence that happens a lot or is this, or is this more of a random event? I mean, that town has been been standing since the colonizers went to Kauai and, and, and built that town. So, you know, that's this is not an event that happens often. But and, you know, if you look at California, for an example, if you own a home in California, you no longer 
can have fire insurance. There is no insurance provider that will insure your home in California because the risk of wildfire and the risk of your home burning in California, the insurance agencies have just said it's not worth it for us. So there's no amount of money that you can pay to protect your home. And, you know, as, as a young person, I can't imagine buying a home that is uninsured and could just one day burn to the ground. And, you know, I'm out of pocket on that. Yeah, no, that, that's, that is pretty crazy. I didn't know that about California. And I don't, I don't know too much about the landscape in California either, as far as, you know, wildfires go. But I will say that when I was in Oahu, um, and I, I arrived as a long flight, I get there and right away I, I show up to the hostel and my friend's like, oh yeah. And they're saying a hurricane's going to hit. And I was like, oh no, this is, this is really poor timing. But then they said, no, Oahu's fine because Oahu doesn't get hit by the storms. It's usually Big Island, I guess, because Big Island just absorbs it. I guess that's that's where it hits. Again, I don't know too much about about how it happens. But I just wanted to add that point in there. But I wanted to ask, you know, how are I've seen your post on Instagram. How are you helping? How is your team helping um, as far as these efforts in Maui? I'm personally helping by when, you know, one of my five, six very dear friends calls, I pick up the phone and allow them to, to cry and grieve and express their anger and deep sadness. And, you know, I've been lining some people up with some of my brand sponsors to mail out clothing and swimwear and personal care goods to folks that have lost everything. Um, I hosted a fundraiser. We raised a thousand dollars from the Maui food bank, but there's, you know, certainly a lot of, of other people out there that are doing more significant things around the, the efforts in Maui. Yeah, I think, and I, I could be butchering this, but I think that the Biden administration sent, I think $700 to each person in Maui. I think I read that. Um, but obviously there's a lot more money that needs to be sent. Like it, like it was saying, five billion dollars. That's it's going to be a lot of damages. So, kind of pivoting off of off of Maui, I think we have a good understanding of what happened and how we can help. And then getting into some of your partnerships, um, and then some of some of these companies that you're an ambassador with. One of one of the organizations you do a lot of work with is Protect Our Winters. Could you talk a little bit about what this organization is and specifically what you do with them? So I'm an athlete ambassador for Protect Our Winters, or POW for short. Um, POW was founded by Jeremy Jones, a professional snowboarder. He recognized that, you know, action sports athletes spend a lot of time outside, in particular snow sports athletes, are really um, impacted by and seeing the effects of climate change. And so it's a rally to bring together um, outdoor passionate people to lean in on climate. So you don't have to be a professional athlete. You just have to care about the outdoor state, maybe you like hiking, you know, maybe you like getting out on a canoe or boat or kayak. And it helps these turn these citizens into activists. So there's educational materials through Protect Our Winters. You can learn about the latest science, what's happening. Um, and then they do a lot of advocacy work on the hill. And so um they brought a lot of us to the Hill um, to uh, lobby for the IRA bill. Um, before it was the IRA, it was like the, I think the Build Back Better bill. 
and so some of the clauses were actually written in directly influenced by Protect Our Winters. Um, and they really represent the, you know, multi-billion dollar outdoor industry that's being affected by climate change. Um, and they're just a great organization that takes a really fun approach to climate work. And anybody and everybody is is welcome to join. If you want to learn more, you can head over to protectourwinters.org um, to join the mailing list and to join the team. Diving into your personal, um, your personal company, Plastic Free Fridays, uh, I think this is really interesting. Um, I think this is really interesting because, again, you grew up you you're outdoors all the time. You're skiing, um, you're surfing. I know you're surfing now. I don't know if you were when you were younger, um, but you saw the impacts of single use plastic waste. And then you ended up creating this, this company called plastic free Fridays. So could you talk about what plastic free Fridays is and then how all of it came to be? Plastic free Fridays is actually, it's not a company. We're an organization. Uh, we're an environmental organization. And I co-founded the project with one of my best friends, Meg Haywood Sullivan, who's an amazing outdoor photographer, artist, and also an environmentalist. And we recognize that plastic pollution um, was a huge crisis. And we wanted to create a landing point for um, the everyday citizen to get involved and so we created Plastic Free Fridays as a call to action for people to refuse single-use plastic on Fridays. And, you know, what ends up happening is you say, all right, this Friday I'm going to go without plastic. And you run into all these touch points at the grocery store when you're getting a coffee in the checkout line, um, et cetera, et cetera. And you start to notice and see where all this single-use plastic is implementing uh, or infiltrating your life. And then uh, we do a bunch of educational content around um, tips and tricks and tools such as packing a jar and packing a reusable um, fork or knife kit if you're going to be out and about. And ultimately, you end up saving a bunch of money as well as saving the planet. And so it's just a really great practice for the environment. Yeah, no, that's that's incredible. Um, I'll say I'll say this. Lastly, the company I just started working for they they're the second largest plastic bottle recycling company in the U.S. Um, recycle on average six billion bottles per year, and they take those bottles and and create flooring out of the fibers, which is really cool. But Sierra, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I know the listeners will too. Thank you, Preston. It was nice to chat with you.